Good afternoon. I'm Jim Dorn, uh, senior fellow at Cato and editor of the Cato Journal. It's a pleasure to welcome you to today's forum, uh, Chinese Intrusions into American Universities, Consequences for Freedom, uh, with Tom Cushman uh, from Wellesley and uh, Xia Liang, uh, visiting fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at Cato. Uh, many top universities have programs in China, as you know, uh, and these exchanges are extremely valuable in developing long-term relationships and learning about each other's cultures. But those benefits should not be allowed to hide the truth about the lack of basic human rights, especially the lack of free speech in China under a communist party that holds a monopoly on power. China has liberalized trade and goods, but as the late Nobel laureate Ronald Coase noted, China needs a, quote, free market in ideas. The Chinese Communist Party has a dominant role in every university. Indeed, the party official is the top authority, not the university's president. Any criticism of the Chinese Communist Party can jeopardize a professor's job. And if you lose your job because of such criticism, or for advocating human rights or academic freedom, you will not be able to find another job in China. This has been the experience of Xia Liang and many others. As incomes rise in China, there has been and there will be a demand for greater personal freedom. And in the information age, there is a rising generation of netizens who are less tolerant of the authorities' attempts to interfere with the free flow of information which is critical to civil society. American universities should continue to engage with Chinese universities, just as we should continue to engage on trade issues. But American universities should not forget first principles, particularly the principle of non-intervention or freedom. Lao Tzu, perhaps China's first libertarian, called this principle Wu Wei, Writing more than 2,000 years before Adam Smith, he instructed, quote, administer the empire by engaging in no activity. The more taboos and prohibitions there are, the poorer the people will be. Therefore, the sage or ruler says, I take no action and the people of themselves are transformed. I engage in no activity and the people of themselves become prosperous. To do so, however, requires limited government and a genuine rule of law, or what F.A. Hayek called a constitution of liberty. These are ideas that we're going to be talking about today. It's a great pleasure to have Thomas Cushman here. Uh, he holds the Diefenbach de Hoyes Carlson Professor Chair in the Social Sciences at Wellesley College, and he's also Professor of Sociology. Uh, I first came across him when he was directing, and he is directing, the Freedom Project at Wellesley College. Uh, he writes broadly on the topic of freedom and dissent in the modern world. He's the author of George Orwell, Into the 21st Century, and editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Human Rights. And let me just quote from his, his CV, or his bio, which is online, because I, I found this very powerful. Here's what he says. He says, at this stage in my career, and he's not that old, uh, I realize that every topic that has ever inter interested me concerns the human struggle for freedom. 
So I intend to spend the rest of my career writing about freedom and especially about the struggles of individuals to be free from arbitrary power and coercive ideologies. Of course, he'd be fired in China. Uh, he goes on to say, my current work is study of dissidents in modern authoritarian societies who are moral exemplars of civil courage and whose lives speak to us about the meaning of freedom and what it means to be human. Tom holds a PhD from my alma mater, the University of Virginia, and we're delighted to have him here. Tom. Thank you. Thank you so much for that nice introduction. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I've never spoke here before, never been here before, and uh, I don't reckon a lot of sociologists have been, um, um, because uh, sociology, uh, some of the libertarian thinking that's influenced me in the last several years uh, don't always go together, although I'm uh, trying to think of how that can happen. So really, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be with my new friend and colleague, Sha uh, Yeliang, who I did not know one year ago and whom I met over the summer when he visited Wellesley uh, at our invitation after Wellesley College signed a memorandum of understanding with Peking University. Um, and people may or may not know the story, which I'm not going to tell in great detail, but about his termination from Peking University and Wellesley College uh, led from among the faculty a very concerted campaign to try to use the language of freedom of Peking University itself and its public pronouncements uh, to get them not to terminate his employment as a condition of a future relationship uh, between Wellesley College and Peking University. So uh, within this just short time I've known him, um, I have become more and more interested in this issue of exchanges and partnerships uh, with Chinese universities among American uh, universities and colleges. Um, and what I'd like to do today is present in a very bare bones way some of my initial thinking about what these relationships mean uh, in terms of uh, knowledge and tru truth and in terms of human rights. And so it's a very preliminary outline of my thinking on this about how I'm trying to frame this issue out as a, uh, a sociologist of knowledge who's interested in the politics of knowledge, how, how knowledge formation uh, is, is influenced by, by politics, economics, uh, and that kind of thing. So uh, what's really interesting before I start is how invisible the, these kinds of questions that I'm asking have been up to date. When I first started looking at this, I thought, well, obviously, many people must have been writing already about and critically about what kind of knowledge is being exchanged, what kind of part, uh, consequences we have of the partnerships, but I've discovered that very few people are writing in any critical way about what kind of knowledge is actually being produced out of these uh, uh, exchanges with experts and, and professionals and scholars in different societies. So uh, I'm really quite stunned by the lack of information, which has spurred me to, to study it more uh, from my particular point of view. How is knowledge organized uh, and how is knowledge facilitated and constrained by these new partnerships. I'd like to start, though, by actually uh, giving the best rationales for why these exchanges happen. I think I like to make very clear in the beginning that I'm not at all, and I didn't when, at Wellesley as one of the leaders of the movement to help my colleague, uh, arguing against 
exchanges. This is not an isolationist uh, uh, perspective uh, in terms of higher education or international relations even. I am politically far from being an isolationist uh, in, uh, in any kind of America's uh, ventures. So it's not really uh, that at all. Um, but what I'm trying to do is talk about what will happen now that we're doing it more and more. Obviously, when you look at the rhetoric that surrounds the partnerships, and when administrators of colleges and universities stop, uh, start these, uh, these exchanges, uh, there's, a, there's a strong rhetoric of practicality and realism attending most of the exchanges. China is a, is a quote, force to reckon with. Uh, we need to uh, understand that American culture hegemony is no longer what it was. China's a rising power. And therefore, the universities, like every other institution, need to coordinate with Chinese institutions. It's a, it's a, it's a, a very reasonable argument, the realist argument. Um, and it's grounded, I think, in, at least in academic environments by progressive ideology, it seems to me. And it's no secret what the political inclinations of most uh, college and university professors are, is, um, and, or are. And uh, the, main, the main argument that I've gotten from administrators that I've talked with, my own included, is that this will be good for China because our presence there will help to liberalize the environment, uh, help spread new ideas about Western liberal democracy, uh, new ideas about rights, new ideas about freedom, and that this will have a, a kind of diffusing positive effect on the development of future Chinese society. Fairly kind of actually, I'll talk about this in a little bit, almost a, an imperialist, a cultural imperialist argument, as some of my colleagues have labeled it, uh, um, who are critical of this kind of thing. But the idea is that this will help China. Uh, and that, you know, the, the way I approach that is that, well, that's an empirical question. You know, does, is there a positive correlation between liberal democratic presence and outcomes in, in authoritarian societies when liberal democratic institutions are there? Um, you know, there might or there might not be. It's an empirical question. My sense is, is that there's no necessary connection between the presence of liberal institutions, liberal ideas coming in from the West and development in local contexts. Uh, there might even be a, a negative correlation that if Westerners are in authoritarian environments spreading liberal ideas to people who say, yes, we like these ideas, uh, they might, in fact, uh, create mobilization in the realm of civil society, which would, could create a crackdown. So there would be an unintended consequence of that progressive ideology that, that it, won't it might liberalize the environment, but it might also create a crackdown uh, by an authoritarian government. Um, bear with me here. Ah. The second argument is that, well, this will liberalize Chinese students. Um, and I'll talk more about the number of Chinese students in the United States uh, later. But the argument here goes something like this. Their presence here will liberalize them. They will return to China and work to liberalize Chinese society. Um, again, this is an empirical question. Uh, since the infusion of Chinese students into American society uh, over the last decade, uh, we have, we're just starting now to do research on what their attitudes are. And I would have to say my preliminary uh, look at this and among the people who are studying is that there is actually perhaps an inverse correlation here that, that in fact students who are going back to China are not necessarily going back there and liberalizing the environment, 
but going back and actually becoming more nationalistic uh, than they were when they came. And Rowena He at Harvard is just publishing a book uh, on this now about uh, Chinese nationalist, uh, nationalist attitudes among Chinese uh, students. She's been studying this for the last 10 years. So these are, these are the rationales. And my initial critical forays has been to try to say something about why these need to be looked at empirically. So what is the nature of the engagement? Uh, it's been often described as a soft power strategy, uh, a propaganda complain, a campaign, diplomacy. Uh, the push factors from China are China's efforts to not only become a world economic power, but to legitimize itself uh, in Western environments. Um, and on the, on the American side, you could see the pull factor, the pull toward China being a result of, the, of American diplomacy, economic markets. Um, it's no secret that President Obama has called for a pivot toward Asia. Uh, and that's that in many ways, at least, especially at Wellesley College, which has very close relations with powerful democratic leaders, uh, that pivot toward Asia has pulled in universities and colleges. And again, I just want to say one thing. I'm not here to, uh, uh, to talk about Wellesley in any kind of critical way, except as it has infused my own understanding of this, but um, the Albright-Clinton narrative on China is very similar to Kissinger's narrative. It doesn't, even though there's time to time discussions of human rights, uh, Wellesley College is a very much, uh, has a very strong presence of Madeleine Albright with our new center for, uh, Albright Center for Global Affairs. And of course, Hillary Clinton is an alum. So, um, so the people who are inclined to be moving in and out of the state sector in, in these administrations and with these leaders are very strongly present. So, um, so this is something that's particular to Wellesley, but I also think more general among American institutions that, that the, the administration has called for a pivot toward Asia and the universities should be part of that. Um, the, the, the most important contractual or agree, uh, agreement, I should say, between the institutions is what's called the Memorandum of Understanding. And it's been very interesting to watch these Memorandum of Understanding ceremonies going on uh, among hundreds and hundreds of colleges in the United States. I had a slide that I began with which showed some of these, just four that I picked off the internet. But there's hundreds of them, and they're very formal affairs where people get together and they sign these Memoranda of Understanding. And um, part of the empirical research for this project that I want to do based on what I'm talking about today would be to actually look at these memorandums of understanding, use content analysis, to see exactly what their understandings are. Uh, but just to give you an example of what one looks like, uh, you've probably seen one, but again, these are all over the place. Uh, you, it's very hard to find data on all this, but if you look online, you can find memorandums of understanding. And you can see they specify fairly technical kinds of things, uh, agreements, and what's interesting is that in many of these memoranda of understanding, although Wellesley's was an exception in this case, um, there's a clause about academic freedom, um, and which says basic principles of academic freedom will be applicable to all educational and research activities, et cetera, et cetera. There are various forms of that, but um, when I read these MOUs as a professor who values freedom of expression and academic freedom as the foundation of all that I do, I say that's a good thing. In principle, rhetorically, it's good to have that 
in these uh, constitutive documents. Um, but of course, the real problem starts when you try to measure exactly whether or not academic freedom is in play uh, in these new exchanges. My argument would be that it's not, and I'll talk about that momentarily. Um, another thing I think it's really important that I've been talking with Professor Shah about recently because we're doing some work together on this now. Uh, the poll factor is the number of Chinese students in the US, uh, which is estimated now at about 235,000 students. Um, it's hard to know exactly how much tuition each of those students is paying, but you could use a figure of, say, $40,000. That was recently published. Uh, that that's what Chinese students, when asked, how much could you afford to pay to come to an American university? It's less than Wellesley, which is inching up towards 60,000 now. Uh, <clears throat> but say 40,000, if you just take 40,000 American dollars and multiply it by 235,000 students, uh, most of the Chinese students are cash payers. And so you're talking about a huge economic incentive here. Huge, vastly, you know, just, just, just with the presence of students paying tuition alone. And I think it's really important to stress the material advantage of that because Wellesley has close to 100 Chinese students and, and none of them are very few, almost negligible number are on financial aid. So it makes a lot of sense to be diplomatic with and have exchanges with China. And, you know, if you were an administrator and you, did, you weren't thinking of that, about that, you wouldn't be doing your job, you know, because Chinese students are literally, they're coming to the United States in, in these mass numbers and literally leaving bags of cash on the table, you know, for tuition. And, you know, administrators, especially in state institutions, are cash-strapped. Uh, cash um, and so this is a huge source of revenue. Um, I should mention one more thing that, uh, Yeliang and I were talking about the, also the derivative economic benefits of that, with parents coming to visit, uh, buying houses, cars, uh, moving money into, into banks. So, you know, the estimates will have to be done about how many billions of dollars uh, these exchanges actually yield for the American economy and institutions. Um, the question, who sets the terms of engagement? Um, I think this is, in my opinion, at least in my initial forays here, I think that China has the upper hand in this case because we have to cede, if we are liberal institutions in the United States, we have to cede to the terms of a closed environment in the United States, whereas the Chinese parties accept no limitation in principle about what they can say or what they want to say in an open environment. And this was something that Karl Popper in his Open Society and in its enemies warned against, that in negotiations with uh, closed societies, open societies would always be at a disadvantage because people from open societies moving about in closed societies would have their speech restricted and people from closed societies and open societies would be able to say or virtually do anything they want. He, found, he saw this as a, a fundamental weakness, uh, absolutely necessary for open societies, but a fundamental weakness uh, for open societies. Um, and we know this, um, <clears throat> that one of the things we've seen a lot of recently our New York Times, Reuters journalists, uh, American professors being banned from China from talking about, uh, for talking about certain topics. And this is a, I, there may be Chinese professors who are banned from American universities, but, but what I'm, I'm more, I'm not so much concerned about that as an American, uh, as a member of a citizen of a liberal democracy. I'm concerned when our intellectuals, our scholars, our, our media, are banned from, uh, from going into China. And I've, 
developed associations with Perry Link and Andrew Nathan, just to name a few, who have been banned from China uh, because they talk about things that are uh, forbidden. Um, so there's not that much reciprocity in terms of what can be talked about, at least on contentious issues. Um, another thing that's been getting a lot of press are Confucius Institutes, um, which are, are actually institutes set up by the Chinese government and under the direct control of the Chinese government in American institutions. And there are hundreds of these. And uh, there's now a new, uh, a, a new critical examination of these. It's just starting to emerge now. There are several anthropologists uh, coming out of the University of Chicago who are actually doing ethnographies of Confucius Institutes to find out exactly what's going on there, what's being taught, who's being hired. Uh, and, and one of the troubling issues there is that in some cases, uh, condition of these Confucius Institutes is that the Chinese the representatives of the Chinese government have hiring and firing power over people in these institutes and also control of the curriculum, which raises a lot of issues about uh, what's happening there. And, uh, I would recommend an article by Marshall Solins, uh, who actually has written, a, you know, it's, not in my, it's not a magazine I see around here, uh, but in the Nation magazine, you know, there's a very long article about about these Confucius Institutes. And Solon and some of the left-leaning anthropologists are concerned about how capitalism is driving all this. And so they're approaching it from a kind of left critique of capitalism. But, but whether or not you're left or right, or whether you're being critical of capitalism, the, the sheer data on what's happening at the Confucius Institutes is really something that bears watching. Uh, <clears throat> another issue is um, certain universities being used as sites for uh, Chinese propaganda displays or sanitized versions of what's going on in the United States. So uh, I was speaking with several Tibetan activists over the last few weeks who have been protesting uh, the presence of a Tibetan dance troupe uh, on the Stanford campus, mainly because the dancers and the people who are there have been screened by the Chinese government for political loyalty and all of that. So that there's this, this idea that somehow people who show up on American campuses, even in an illustrious place like Stanford, are being pre-selected or pre-chosen uh, based on politics, and that we're therefore getting a, a rather sanitized version of Tibet. Um, I'll talk a little bit about my own experience um, as a case study. And in doing this, I'm not trying to share the, the, the secrets of my institution with the public. I'm trying to approach it um, in a kind of ethnographic way, as a sociologist might, to think about this as a case which illustrates some of the issues that we're going to face going forward. Um, there, is a, there is an article about what happened at Wellesley in terms of our open letter, which I think was actually not to be self-congratulatory because I was only one of the organizers. Seven professors from different part, departments, different political orientations, got together and drafted an open letter to Peking University using their own language about academic freedom, saying we wanted to have a partnership, but we didn't want them to terminate our colleague who we had just met. We wanted to have openness and academic freedom. Um, and it was remarkable. 140 faculty members signed the letter, about half the faculty. And I, my standard joke on that is getting half of a faculty to agree on anything is very difficult. But it was really remarkable in my, in my case. It was very multipartisan. Uh, and I, I think that's one of the great things about this particular case, that at least in the case of Professor Shah, um, the support on the left and the right in different kinds of media and newspapers has been somewhat 
strongly nonpartisan. There's been you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, um, all these different kinds of newspapers and magazines have written uh, positively about this case. Um, did we think the petition would work when we did it? Uh, no, <laughs> because we were told by certain people sitting in the room that it wouldn't work. Uh, we made sure that we asked first, do you think this will harm you? And um, his view was that, well, it's already been decided, and so it won't harm you. But so, we did, so the petition was mainly symbolic uh, in order to, and I'm happy to send the letter to anybody who doesn't have it, uh, to say it was a kind of a ritual of solidarity with our, 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 our liberal, uh, uh, progressive, uh, free-thinking uh, people uh, in China, an affirmation of shared principles. And I think that we wrote it mainly because we had no one else in the United States had done such a thing. We, there had been several professors at different universities, Yale, Northwestern, NYU, Duke, who had written to their administrators and said, well, we'd really like you to take a closer look at this. But uh, none of us, none of them had actually taken the fight to, 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 to the, the Communist Party. And so it was a pretty radical action in that regard uh, for what's normally fairly sleepy Wellesley. Uh, so, you know, I think that's, you know, one of our intentions was also to get more people to, to do these kinds of things. Now, what ensued is really where the story gets interesting. Um, and what I'd like to talk about is a range of behaviors that I observed among my own colleagues. Uh, again, in, a, in terms of what happened after this became a major news event, because it did, in fact, become a major uh, news event. What, so what I'd like to develop is what I would call roughly a typology of responses to Chinese intrusions uh, into the academy. Uh, the first one is the one I'm favorable toward, which is that when uh, there is issues of academic, are issues of academic freedom, freedom of expression, repression of dissidents, that American professors express support, support and solidarity for dissidents, human rights, freedom. And that would be, for me, the ideal outcome. That's one thing that I would hope that all of my professorial colleagues would exhibit, and I think that's what our letter exhibited. Uh, another another uh, common response is what I, for lack of a better word, would call indifference. Uh, retreat, a kind of retreatist point of view based on a lack of knowledge, a cautious point of view, a, a measured point of view, and actually, uh, somewhat reasonable in many ways. I mean, many of my colleagues, and I didn't, you know, say, why aren't you signing it? I never did that. I said, I just said, if you don't want to sign it, that's your choice. I'm not going to put pressure on you. People just said, I don't know enough. I'm not a China expert. You know, I, don't, I need to look further into it before I, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable response. It's a measured response, and nobody should be castigated for refusing to sign a petition because you know, that's a, a kind of totalitarian castigation if you were to do something like that. So um, a lot of my colleagues and a lot of professors, I think, uh, just said, I don't know enough. Um, but then something interesting happened. Uh, several of the people, not a lot, but a very few of the people wanted to unsign the, the petition, which is difficult because it was an open letter circulated to the internet. You can't really unsign it. And they came to us and they raised some issues uh, and they wanted to unsign it when they saw that I had made overtures to secure grant money uh, to bring Professor Shah to Wellesley College as a visiting scholar. Uh, and they didn't like the sources of the funding. Um, I run this, I started this uh, program called the Freedom Project. And um, my, some of my funding 
met much of my funding for the project and the grant itself came from the Thomas W. Smith Foundation, and, which is a libertarian think tank. And uh, they've been very supportive and have not determined what I do there. They've, they want to foster freedom of expression. But some of my colleagues, mainly from what I would call the far left, wanted to withdraw their support when they found out I was receiving funds from what they considered to be a right-wing uh, foundation. Uh, so that, that's something you'll see. Uh, people uh, who are, it's an interesting response because they were willing to kind of go against the dissident, change their mind, not because of the dissident, but because of the source of the funding that was going to help the dissident. I think you're going, if you're looking out for this in your own environment, you're going to see some of that if you're trying to assist um, um, dissidents. The fourth uh, response, it's something related to number two, but it's a little more active, self-censorship. Uh, self-censorship being uh, sacrificing scholars who are China experts saying, look, I, I, I side with the guy and I'd like to help him, but I think really that we, I, I need to have access to China. I'm not gonna sacrifice that access to help this one person. And so that's a kind of uh, response to uh, sell up to, uh, you know, just to protect one's scholarly interest. And that's rather common as well. I'm not going to engage on any rights issues or freedom of expression issues on that for that reason, uh, for the reason of my, my access. Um, the fifth is the class of what I would call, and this is where I really get critical and a little bit more uh, intense, willful, deliberate misrepresentation. So um, there was a, a, a small but concerted uh, organized effort from the left-wing factions at my college, which claimed that what I was doing, what we were doing, by telling the Chinese that they should abide by academic freedom was cultural imperialism, uh, demeaning and rude to the Chinese. And in one case, we were accused of being Orientalists, of, uh, which is a kind of favorite term of Western leftists to talk about uh, any relations with, uh, with non-Western powers. And so, uh, there were lots of ideological attacks on, on this effort. Uh, and then some people just say, well, we're, we're making a lot of money from this. We have alumni, we have students, you know, this is a, you know, it's a, it's a sad fact, but, you know, these, these partnerships are lucrative. There's no ideology at all involved. It's just a pragmatic kind of uh, um, a move. And then um, this one is actually very uh, important and also controversial, I, I realized that at least on our faculty, and I think on many faculties, we have professors who are Chinese nationals who are actually nationalistic and who are openly affiliated with Communist Party organizations. And it's not secret. It's not like I'm, I, I'm saying like I'm McCarthy and I have a list. They're actually saying, yes, I work for the provincial party and the overseas Chinese unit and promote Chinese ideals and all that kind of thing. And they're nationalists. And so when they resist, say, helping a dissident, they're actually taking the, the Chinese nationalist side that assumes that the dissidents are somehow troublemakers and, and really shouldn't be um, 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 brought to our universities. And this was a very powerful case at Wellesley, in fact, that one of the major uh, intrusions uh, was several Chinese nationals on the faculty who more or less took the line of the Communist Party of, of China. And that's just a fact. So, it's provocative, but it's a fact. So if we're talking about knowledge, 
um, in my mind, the, the kind of composite picture that I'm trying to paint here is that if we're trying to promote knowledge, the field that we're working in is going to have to navigate through this, these, uh, I like to say Scylla and Charybdis, you know, in terms of the, but it's, it's more like lots of Scyllas and lots of Charybdises, uh, you know, and that's kind of how I look at it. So sociologically, I would want to, to think about all these different elements in an institution that if you're looking at your own or other people's, you ought to look at these things. Um, <clears throat> this, this is, uh, for the sake of time, I'll hop onto this. Um, what I've tried to do as somebody who looks at the production of knowledge is look at this in terms of what I call knowledge zones. Uh, and this very simple diagram just basically articulates that in the green center, there are a number of issues that are relatively unproblematic. Pure science, mathematics, medicine, engineering, language, business, these things are safe for exchanges so that when you see exchanges, you're more liable to see them limited to the topics that occur in that green zone in the middle, which are, are relatively unproblematic. And then, maybe this is a good thing, there's a, a zone of what I would call problematicity, if you want to use a jargony term, uh, where, where the topics to be discussed between institutions are negotiated. And that could be certain policy ins uh, or international relations ins uh, ideas, historical topics, literature, art. But again, those would have to be subjected to a certain kind of uh, uh, test, a political test. I put Marxism with a question mark there because uh, it seemed to me that, for instance, if you were a diehard Marxist who wanted to go to, to China and make a Marxist argument for how the elites are hoarding money and creating massive class divisions, you would not be welcomed by the Communist Party of China, it would be because you would be a real Marxist using real Marxian analysis. So those could be negotiated. But the real important part here for our exchanges is the red zone here. That, from, in my opinion, in these exchanges, there are going to be, and there are, actual uh, prohibited topics, uh, forbidden topics, and that that in going into exchanges with Chinese institutions, liberal institutions of higher education, are going to, this would be a hypothesis, are, are more likely to avoid those topics and not push on those topics, like freedom of expression, freedom of the press, the critique of the Communist Party, civil society, class issues. And you know, in China, uh, if, if Americans are in China on exchange, you could make an argument that it would be not very diplomatic to talk about the crimes of Mao Zedong, you know, and that since we're in China, you know, maybe we can avoid that one for now. What I'm worried about, and what I think there's more than ample evidence of, is when, when Chinese uh, members from the Chinese side are in American environments, that those same prohibited topics will not be freely discussed on American campuses. In other words, we will censor or self-censor uh, when we're in the United States. And I think that that's really empiric that's a, an empirical question that we need to look at. How, what happens in these exchanges when the Chinese side actually comes to the institution in terms of the topic? So in our own situation, for instance, we went to China and we talked about global warming. And you know, these are things that we agree are problems. Uh, by the way, also, uh, this is a great conjunction, a great opportunity for statists to get together and, and, and kind of support developmental autocracies and say, yeah, you need a strong straight state in order to, uh, to ward off uh, um, the, the problems of climate change. 
Um, but I think that, 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 that our exchanges, and this is again somewhat hypothetical, but I think grounded in my understanding of what gets talked about, they have a technocratic bias that will favor the Chinese side in this program of authoritarian uh, development. I should tell you one thing, when we, when we signed the MOU, I wrote to the Communist Party secretary at Peking University, telling him I was the founder of the Journal of Human Rights, and I've been working in human rights. I'd love to come to Peking University and give a talk about freedom of expression. I never got an answer. Uh, and you know that's typical. But if they come here, and we can't talk about Tibet or Tiananmen, uh, uh, or any of those kinds of things, I think that we have a really serious problem there. Um, and that's what I'm watching out for. Uh, I'm watching out for how our relations, these new social relations with the Chinese regime in institutions of higher education might cause us to censor ourselves here. And that would be, I think, the takeaway point of caution that I would urge people to uh, think about. So what to do, I'll just wrap it up. Um, and let uh, Professor Shah have a say. I do think that professors need to stand up and speak collectively about academic freedom in a bipartisan way and need to hold their own local experts and the people who are doing these exchanges to account uh, for what they're doing publicly if need be and in the media if need be. And administrators need to be sure in our environment that we adhere to our norms and not the norms of the Communist Party of China. Uh, we need to be public about the involvements of Chinese authorities who represent the Chinese side. I can say one of the mitigate, one of the overall uh, most powerful forces that got me interested in this is during our own exchange, uh, Madam Chen Zhili, who had been the Minister of Education from 1998 to 2003, uh, who appeared as a guest speaker as gave, giving the keynote address. And I received messages from all, many different people saying, do you know who she is? I said, not really, tell me who she is. She was the Minister of Education who had personally organized the, 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 the put in the position to organize the purge of the Falun Gong movement. And I, that's when it kind of, I had this epiphany and said, wait, we're, set, we're setting this up as a model for our students, a model of leadership? I'm not sure as a liberal democratic, a citizen of a liberal democratic, uh, society and an intellectual, I like the idea that a person like that would be set up as a model for our students of leadership. Um, and we need to be ready to push administrators on trustee relations about whether their institutions are serving uh, as a cultural arm of American administrations. You know, if Obama says that we need to pivot toward Asia and Wellesley pivots toward Asia and some of these knowledge outcomes happen, I think we need to be critical about that. And it would be any president, not just Obama. That if, if, if we're pivoting toward Asia, we need to do that pivoting in order to, uh, in, in order to do that pivoting, we need to censor or deny the possibility of saying certain things. I think that's an issue. And then the last uh, issue, and this just came up recently in my, my discussions, is that one of the things I'm concerned about in case of state institutions that are tax funded uh, is that, <clears throat> that we need to be really concerned if there's any pressure from Chinese state authorities uh, that's abridging the constitutional rights and freedoms of American citizens. And I was told this, and I need to look into it in more detail, that uh, talking with a member of the Tibetan National Congress, that if a Tibetan American student who was a citizen of the United States applies to go on an exchange uh, with China through, say, a state university, their chances for acceptance 
might be lower than if they weren't a Tibetan citizen. And that, you know, we need to consider, you know, whether or not our, state, our tax money that pays for, for public institutions, uh, the extent to which it's, it's, uh, it's, it's denying rights to, to Americans who might be unfavored groups in the Chinese uh, administration. So um, these are some basic points. I, I'd like to just leave with that. There's a lot to talk about in this case, but I'll turn it to my, my colleague and he can join in. So. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tom. Uh, our next speaker will be Xia Ye Liang. Uh, I first met uh, Xia more than 14 years ago. Uh, it's, it's nice to see him again, but not under these particular circumstances. Uh, he's a visiting fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, as I mentioned, and uh, Ian Vasquez runs that center, and Ian was instrumental in helping uh, bring Shaw here. So I'd like to thank Ian, along with Tom. Uh, prior to joining Cato, Shaw was a professor in the Department of Economics at Peking University, uh, where he taught since uh, 2000. He was dismissed from Peking University in October 2013 because of his outspoken criticism of the China, China's Communist Party and his advocacy of democracy and human rights. He has been a visiting scholar at Stanford University, UCLA, Berkeley, and Wellesley. Uh, these, are, of course, are all prestigious uh, universities and colleges. Uh, and his dismissal from Peking, therefore, uh, could not have been on scholarly grounds, uh, definitely on political grounds. Uh, most important, uh, Shaw was among the original signatories of Charter 08, uh, calling for basic freedoms, constitutional democracy, and respect for human rights. Uh, he helped also found the Cathay Institute of Public Affairs in China, and he holds a PhD in economics from Fudan University in Shanghai, where I actually had the opportunity to teach back in the uh, 90s. And uh, it's a great pleasure and honor to have him here today. Sean. Thank you, Jim and Tom. <clears throat> I'm so glad and much honored to be here as uh, one of the faculty, uh, one of the employees at Cato. Uh, it's a long story to describe my situation. Uh, I think that many people of you uh, have the Reddit from newspaper and other media. So I don't want to talk about that. Uh, I often heard the kind of saying, China is very complicated to understand. Uh, that recently, my friend uh, Tom Palmer, who was the vice president of Cato and now is the Atlas Economic Foundation, he said it again. Why is it so complicated to understand? Because our institution so far is not transparent. It's not consistent. It's not even modern. I think that it's... Uh, for a totalitarian regime, it's uh, not only against the willing, a will of the people, but against the human beings. See, in recent months, or the last one year, two years, you could read a lot of articles written by the facial media to criticize constitutional democracy. They think it's a bad thing, it's an evil thing. And they called the Western political system as an evil road. But they call that their own way, it's called the Marxist or socialist market economy as a broad way, a successful way to reach the goal. 
what is a goal? But actually, there's no existing goals here now in China. I mean, uh, many years ago, maybe people say uh, communism is uh, the eventual goal of the people in China. But nowadays, if you ask anyone, do you really believe in communism? Do you really think it could be realizing someday? And even the high-ranking officials and their children would not believe that. You see, too many families of high-ranking officials send their children to study abroad. Do they have real trust in their own education system? Not. So why do they want to borrow the good fame and name from Harvard and Stanford? And got those PhD degrees, then they became, they became the leaders of China. Then they would say, oh, we have the equal quality of education as our peers in Western world. So I just have the warning for all those universities, top universities in USA. You think you got some benefits through the cooperation with China, but who will win in the future? It's hard to tell. How can you say the Cold War has been ended? The, the, there's no enemy for US anymore? I don't want to be exaggerating the situation, but nowadays China is building its second or maybe third aircraft carriers. They plan to build five. Why do they want to build that? It's only for fun? Uh, we have to, the question that we, maybe many people know, do we have academic freedom in China? Do we have freedom of thinking? Just imagine any social scientist, a scholar of social sciences or humanities in China, if you apply for any funding, you should obey a basic principle that you, you, sh you should be loyal to socialism, Marxism. You cannot go against it with your research. Otherwise, you cannot get those funding. So just like uh, an example, when you get, uh, try to get access to Wi-Fi, free Wi-Fi in the airport or in a hotel, normally the page appears, say, do you agree on that agreement? Nobody will really read carefully about those contents. At least I won't. I just say, agree. Then I get access. So any people in China, if you really want to get something, you should be living there, get promotion, job, or any benefits. You should agree on, oh, agree on communism, socialism, Marxism. Otherwise, it's not even possible for you to get a job, a decent job. So people criticize me. Uh, so you, you seem to be a dissident. Why you teach in Chinese university? Because all those resources are offered by the Communist Party. If you working, you've been working there for more than 13 years, that means you have cooperation with the Communist Party for a long time. So I would say, what other choices? If you want to work in China, you, you like to be a teacher or university professor, that means you have to accept this kind of agreement. It doesn't mean from your mind, from deep, deep points of mind, you agree on communism or socialism or Marxism. So people say, as far as you existed or you stay at the system, that means you support communism, socialism, Marxism. It's nonsense. I don't believe that. 
So uh, many people in China nowadays, the intellectuals are considered as synonism. I'm not, maybe it's the wrong. Cynicalism, right? Cynical. Cynical. I, I don't know whether it's a good name or correct name for that. That means intellectuals or scholars, they fear, they're frightened by those dictatorships. So they like to make some compromise, they would like to give in or even give up the basic principles. Uh, in their youth or childhood, they might like to strive for more freedom, for constitutional democracy in China. But later on, they, they give up because they say, hey, we have families, we have relatives, I can't, do, I can't lose my job, I can't do anything against the party and the government, otherwise I could be put into the jail. So some reporters ask me the same question again and again. Are you feared or are you frightened? Why you choose to do this? I said, everybody has a family. Everybody has relatives. If you don't want to go against the dictatorship, that means your generation after generation, that means the people will suffer from this system. And our children, generation after generation, will suffer more. So I would say I'd like to make the sacrifice. The people say you are boasting. Why you don't stay in China and let people arrest you and put you into jail? I have, actually, I'll tell you the truth, I have the preparation already. I told my wife three years ago, I said, someday if I put into jail, you'd better to divorce with me. And I, I don't need any properties, it's all yours. And you can look after my, our son, and you will have a good life. And I think I got my goal. Because I believe in uh, utilitarianism, it's uh, uh, in economics, it means you research, you search for or pursue for your own goal. I think my own goal is to have a free China in the future, to have constitutional democracy, rule of law, individual freedom, free market competition. People think it's very basic concepts. Some people were born in Western countries. You, got it, you get this very easily. But for us, it's so hard. We strive for, we have been striving for more than 100 years. Of course, I'm not that old. I mean, the people try to establish the constitutional democracy in China. They tried in many ways. Almost all of them are failed. Only with one exception, it's now in Taiwan. Partially, and it's not, maybe it's not high extent of democracy. But anyway, it has some basics. So I would like to promote it. I'd like to contribute to it whether it's in USA or in China. Someday, if the extent, I mean, the situation has been changed, I, I will be more willing to go back to continue my uh, pursuit there. So thank you so much. I just uh, speak. Thanks. Thanks very much, Yuliang. Uh, he could well be in jail for signing Charter 08, the Nobel laureate uh, uh, Leo Xiaobo, of course, has been uh, put in jail. Uh, and uh, people, he was a good, they were good friends, and uh, he was risking his own situation by uh, promoting Charter 08. So I think we should uh, really congratulate him for his courage and, uh, and dedication to the principles of freedom. 
uh, it was interesting, a, a few years ago, I was looking up a friend of mine at, at Beida, Peking University, and uh, was looking through the uh, directory and see there's a propaganda department uh, at uh, Peking University. Peking's like the Harvard University of China. And uh, every university has a propaganda department. As I said, the party member uh, in that department ranks above the uh, president of the university. And I think a lot of people don't understand uh, that, that arrangement. So let's open it up to uh, Q&A. And if you, uh, there's a microphone that will be coming around. If you just raise your hand, I'll call on you. And then uh, if you could identify yourself and keep your, your questions uh, directed to one of the two speakers and keep them short. <clears throat> Hi, Dr. Kushman, Dr. Sia. My name is Jeremy Aoyong. I'm from the Straits Times of Singapore. Uh, Dr. Kushman, I just wanted to ask you about uh, your proposal that academics should speak up. I, I wanted to get your sense of how effective that is if it doesn't come with um, some sort of visible and forcible action after. Like in the case of Wellesley, there was a petition that said you would reconsider the partnership, but the partnership ultimately remained. How effective is that? Just to have that petition, knowing <coughs> that it's not going to change anything. And uh, for Dr. Sia, I just want to get a sense from you. Whether you think, uh, how do you think the US institutions can make the, their partnership with China work? Or is there no way to make it work and we should just scrap it all together? Should I go first since you asked me first? Um, I, it's a good question. I, I think if I go back in my own, uh, the history of this event, I can remember asking myself, it has to be done just at a local level. And my hope would that be that it would spread to other professors. And so the next step would be to, is what I'm doing is to convene professors who have done what we've done in one place and, you know, organize as a civil, as a civil society or, uh, effort to, to uh, at least say something. I mean, what was stunning to me is nobody was saying anything. Now, that, that could be a, a byproduct of the fact that bravery and political courage are not exactly the strongest cards of most academics. They, they, that's why they're academics, you know, because they are out of the rough and tumble of politics. And I think a lot of my colleagues just simply didn't want to be in the rough and tumble of politics, and I understand that. But I think that saying nothing is much worse than saying something. And we were very careful in our letter to craft that it was crafted such that it was about our institution and about this colleague and about these principles. And we hope that other people at other institutions will do that as well. And that will just depend on whether or not professors have political fortitude uh, to ally in this cause. I'm not that optimistic, but it, you know, well, time will tell. I hate that line, but you know, it might be useful to mention that. Okay, <clears throat> so yeah, people notice that there's a uh, uh, campus, new campus in Shanghai of NYU. Uh, my, you know, my respect is, no, I, I have the doubts whether you have the consumptory course like uh, Marxism and socialism. Uh, normally in China's other universities, Peking University and other thousands of universities, they have these compulsory courses. If the new NYU campus also teach these courses. So what it does it mean for US institutions? And if you have to compromise to 
give up some basic values like uh, uh, the freedom of speech and all those things. So what's the purpose of education? What's the purpose of international exchange? Uh, American institutions are so lacking on money. Uh, if I just say maybe it's not a good example. If Hitler is here, he tried to make uh, some cooperation with Western universities. It's also due. I, I mean, give the money, then you would like to accept those cooperation. Uh, some people will, will say, oh, you cannot compare with that. But there's some, some aspects, it's quite similar. So I don't mean I want to uh, encourage people or university to cut off the cooperation or any kind of context. I mean, that you have to keep that principles in your mind. That maybe those people just want to borrow your good names and ruin that names. For instance, people know Bo Gua Gua is the son of a uh, former high-ranking official, Bo Xilai. If Bo became the president of China, then Bo Gua Gua is very possible to be the successor of China. Uh, you know, uh, Bo Gua Gua got the Harrow private school diploma and then entered uh, Oxford University, then Harvard, and now it's Columbia PhD candidate. So if he got all those titles and degrees and to be a new dictator, so what would be the purpose of education for Western universities? That's all. Yeah, Roger. I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Uh, Professor Cushman, you uh, have rightly expressed concern about uh, American universities being compromised by these exchanges. I'm wondering how much compromising there is. You're familiar, I expect, with the organization FIRE, uh, Foundation for Individual Rights in uh, uh, Education, which brings uh, actions regularly against American colleges and universities for their failure to uphold free speech, for their, indeed, uh, attacks on faculty uh, and students who do speak up. So I'm wondering whether when the Chinese students come here, they don't more often than not learn criticisms of American liberalism in the old sense of the word, uh, and indeed, uh, when they return to China, are, if anything, reinforced uh, in that. Uh, it seems to me that uh, we've got a real problem right here. <clears throat> well, I, I, this is actually something I didn't get into, but I think is important, is the Chinese students, who I, who I must say I adore them. I'm glad they're here. I'm, I, I, I'm so happy that they're here because they're, they're very, very interested in learning, but they're also, their political so socialization has been toward not speaking about anything that's contentious or provocative. They want to learn. And I organized a conference with Perry Link and some other prominent people at Wellesley in which we talked about Tiananmen and Tibet. And many of the Chinese students came, and some didn't because they were not sure who was watching. And whether if there's somebody there that's watching or reporting back, they might say, oh, they were at that troublemaking event where they were talking about Tibet. But the ones who were there, they were very eager. They were very eager to learn. Some of them were very defensive about China, which I understand. And, you know, I think we need to work with them. Um, 
again, whether or not, I think I'm glad you brought up fire, which I, again, I adore that institution as, as well. Um, whether or not students are learning about freedom of speech in American universities is questionable, <laughs> whether, no matter where they're from. And I think that's, you know, so, you know, what's really kind of rankling me about all of this is the quietness about contentious issues, you know, not only about the kind of things that fire does, but also about contentious issues in China. I don't think that, generally speaking, most of our institutions are going to be set up to speak about the three T's, as they're often called, Tiananmen, Tibet, and Taiwan, or about Mao Zedong, or about the famine. Um, and it, the students, I can understand that. They're scared, and they don't, they don't feel right talking about that. But it's my colleagues that I'm, that I'm more worried about, about their self-censoring and um, their... My Chinese lesson for the day this morning was, I hope I get this right, Zigong? Zigong. Sorry, that was, that's what I learned in Chinese this morning. Um, but, you know, this kind of self, you know, this, this self-emasculation or something like that. You know, that, that if they're not, if, our, if the professors aren't going to hit the hot button issues on rights, and civil society and, and, part and, and constitutionalism, then the students are never going to get it. And I think there's reasons why they don't. They're very timid because they want to have these relations with China. And it, it, Perry Link uses the metaphor of the anaconda and the chandelier to talk about the nature of the Communist Party. That it doesn't come down much, but it's up there. Everybody knows, and every once in a while, it'll swoop down, and it's magnificent snake-like presence and let people know that it exists and you know not to be engaged in hyperbole but my my concern is whether or not the anaconda and the chandelier is here and this is not a paranoid style or anything like that it's simply that you know that there's a presence of Chinese politics in American universities now that wasn't there when I started off in academia and that we need to look at it carefully um, very hard. Yeah. Yes. I taught in China for a year, and I just came back. Wanna, from, okay. I taught journalism in China at University of, uh, actually it was Nongda. It was uh, agricultural, China Agricultural University, and there was an international college, Beijing, there. And then I taught at University of Hong Kong. And uh, I was surprised at how much freedom I had initially to talk about freedom of speech. I, uh, I had a very nice, very liberal uh, head of the Communist Party who was a retiring dean who said, I really think we should probe these questions, which was remarkable to me. Um, the failure, I agree with you, is coming, I think, from the American side as much as the Chinese side. Uh, the administrator didn't want to rock the boat. The, he was the head of uh, University of Colorado, Denver. Uh, I, I was a boat rocker. I talked about free speech. I, and I also criticized my own government. I also, one of my techniques to try to be fair was to say, was to, when I described what happened with Edmund Burke and some of these other people throughout the evolution of our democracy is some of the problems that we're having. So that, I, that, that the Chinese students did not feel I was simply attacking them out of my naivete. Uh, and most of my students who were interested, they were in communication, were 
not only fascinated, but very interested in democracy. As a matter of fact, I took them into a private room to listen to Chen Guangcheng, his private, uh, this was the blind activist who came to the United States. I took them into a private room to describe, to let them see a video in which he described what had happened to him with these armed guards and people who had beaten up his wife and all of this, you know, that they listened and they went on and they, they believe in democracy. So a certain percentage of these students, I really think we're getting, we're, we're having a real exchange and I think it's positive. Um, as it turned out, I was let go by our own dean, not because I had very, very high, I did have very high ratings from the students, but uh, I started an internship program, uh, and instead of being praised for that, initially I was praised, but later on uh, criticized for being too much of a kick butt. But, uh, but what he didn't like was that I was giving the lower administrators some trouble because I wanted to do research on photography, and they would not let me because of the nature of the photographs. So my feeling about if you don't mind if I share this with you, my feeling about all this is that we should keep trying, but the biggest problem with the American universities is that they need funding from our own country. If we were not involved in the kind of wars that we're, we've been, if we have not been, been borrowing money from the Chinese, uh, if we were funding education the way we should, then we could be more selective about both admitting students from abroad and even giving Chinese students who are not rich a chance to live, to work here, uh, sorry, to study here. And uh, the other piece of it is when we, when we send students over and faculty over uh, to these programs, I think they need a much stronger orientation. I think they need to be told what some of the cultural sensitivities are and to simply not, not just to shut up about them, but to talk about them. Um, I also think that it would be a really good idea if American universities would stop always thinking about their money uh, and their problems with their budget and start thinking about what they're really trying to achieve. Because the, the economic incentive to cash out on China is huge. And I think it is actually causing a problem. OK, do we have a question? How about way in the back there? Um, thank you. Uh, I'm Sunny Jing here with the Cato Institute. Uh, my question will bring the issue to another higher level. Uh, I'm wondering how do you think of um, U.S. foreign pol policy toward China, uh, how that policy will um, help China to liberalize uh, its politics? Because to me, it's always the balance of being moral for the United States. Um, to balance being moral and um, getting economic benefits. Apparently, U.S. is borrowing money from China, so they can't say um, that they can recognize Taiwan or the issues. And last week, when Obama uh, visit, um, met with um, the Dalai Lama, um, he couldn't recognize the Tibetan issue either. So it then it then turns about the um, U.S. foreign policy toward China. How do you think of that? Okay. I'm not an expert on the international relations, but from the, the Chinese scholar's point of view, I would say uh, Obama administration seems to me is a more compromise 
the more giving. Uh, people say even in China, people keep saying that the uh, U.S. need more. Now it depends more on China than China depends on U.S. So that's probably part of the reasons, but I'm not sure. Uh, so I hope in the future, whoever to be the new president, they should consider the, the world situation from the perspective that whether the, the Cold War has been ended or over at all, or do we have or some kind of things we should reconsider? People know that in early 1950s, that's a McCarthyism, right? At that time, any people are suspicious as the Communist Party members, they might lose their job. It's easy, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, so aggressive on them. But nowadays, even people could sense that there's some real spies in U.S. I would say that among those top universities, every year there are some visiting scholars. Among them, I can definitely say some people are actually spies. They don't do any research. Uh, probably they just do some survey for their, for their boss. So my question is whether FBI would do their job on this issue or not. Or they don't have the, uh, the budget for the, for the, to do that or not. So uh, for, for the national defense or security or, or for the international relations, there are a lot of experts to work on that. I won't say much about that. Okay. Yeah, how about over here? Hey, um, my name is Yongming. I'm a Chinese student here studying in the U.S. Um, thanks for uh, Professor Cushman. Like, you're welcome to for Chinese students studying here. This is a great opportunity. Like, for me, but to answer passionately, like, uh, to uh, like Chinese students, like many study computer science or STEMs. They don't. Um, it's really not not their desire to just learn um, those ideas of a. Uh, liberty or any kind of things. So it's really like for me, when, what I've observed, like um, Chinese students live their own life. They have a, like China time there. So it's, it's really not the issue of um, the American university, what they can do. It's really what Chinese students, um, what they think about the studying, why studying in the U.S. Uh, I want to ask a question to Professor Shah. Uh, when I look at the website, I really appreciate your courage to uh, speak up. But when I look at the website of the Peking University for the responses to the reason to, um, to terminate the contract with you, they say it's because of the um, low rating of the Chinese students because of bad performance in the class. Namely, you talk too much about non-economic issues. That's kind of a... I don't know whether you will have an explanation for that. That's kind of to me, uh, like when I was in Fudan University, Shanghai, students are really excited about um, like historians, like any professors who could kind of a criti criticize um, Communist Party in the class a little bit. But it, when it comes to uh, too much, it comes to another extreme, like students, they don't like it. Um, I don't know whether you would respond to the... Um, 
the Peking University is like their response that low rankings like student they don't like your class. Is that true? I just to your the last question. Actually, I've been teaching you uh, in Peking University for more than thirteen years. As only with one class have that strong response. So my students could be uh, over several thousands of them. If you ask any of them, not beside, not, not the only class, you could get the answer. So if I was so bad as they described, so how can I uh, give lectures, many lectures in the, in the, in the country every year? And I appear frequently as CCTV, as speak guest, guest speaker. Uh, you have to see, you just watch your search on the internet. There's a lot of things about me. So it's not a new. Uh, so I don't want to explain uh, in details what kind of teacher. I just challenge Peking University with one th question. If anyone were considered in academic or in teaching, it's worse than me or inferior than me. So do they like to fire them immediately? It's just challenging them. Because they said I'm the worst for the last 30 years. That's, in the last 30 years, there's no single teacher has been fired because of bad teaching. That means I'm the only one in the university. So now things are left, that's all universities are well qualified as no worse bad teacher at all. So just ask them to give the answer. Thanks. Can I say one thing quickly about that? Because um, one of my colleagues actually, who had supported Professor Shah, actually turned and said he had evidence of bad teaching, but he couldn't share it with us, uh, which is kind of the response that the Communist Party people had. There was no evidence. There was nothing shared. And, and you know, the idea is, it was such clear, for anybody who studied dissidents in any kind of comparative sense, it was so clear that it was a purge that you'd, you'd have to be either a real fool or extremely corrupt to believe that line if you're a Western professor who knows anything about China. And that's what I worry about. I didn't get to it in my talk, the problem of corruption, knowing these things are wrong but using them anyway uh, for material or benefits advantages. So I, you know, there could be evidence presented, but I didn't see any. So. He's been his hand I think we have time for one more question before lunch. And he's had right here. Thank you, uh, Charles Bloom, IAS Group. I, I'd like to see if, if we could broaden the scope a little bit and, and talk about freedom of expression in the arts, um, rather, rather opposed to ac narrowly considered uh, academic freedom. I wonder how you would evaluate the state of freedom of expression today in China. I'm thinking about, for example, uh, the 798 uh, art zone, the museum therein, some of the art that's exhibited, it's some of it, very conventional. Some of it is kind of uh, avant-garde, some of it is blatantly political. I'm wondering how you would evaluate that, the impact of that on Chinese uh, visitors and on foreign visitors. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, you go. I didn't catch the, the main ideas. Well, <clears throat> I, he didn't catch the main idea, but the idea of, you asked about the art and that there's a range of expression. I, I would say one thing on that, and that I, I'm almost certain I've read this somewhere, that the 
the lead in the Communist Party have been asked to read Alexis de Tocqueville's The Old Regime in the French Revolution, not because they want to promote Tocqueville's ideas. That particular book says you have to be careful of giving your people too many freedoms because that's when the revolutions happen. They're using Tocqueville as a manual for repressing revolution. You know, and so the problem with those liberalizations is that they, they create expectations and, and ideas of deprivation, and then you start getting more larger scale civil society movements, and then there's a crackdown. So I would be very wary about, and I'm not an expert on that particular issue, about, about confusing the existence of some dissent or freedom of expression with a longer scale trend toward institutionalizing that. Talking about the arts, uh, maybe some of you saw a couple weeks ago, there was a picture in the Wall Street Journal of a uh, white man in underwear on the Wellesley campus. No. Uh, and there's a big... Uh, <laughs> Separate lecture. <laughs> yes. Sculpture on the Wellesley campus, sort of a Alzheimer's type guy wandering around. And uh, students apparently don't like the statue, but the art department claims it's a work of art. Only some <laughs> students. Only some students. Gentlemen, raise hands yeah. many. Which one? Right here. He had his hand up since the very okay. beginning, right there. My name is Stephen Shore. For Professor Shua, would a free and democratic China be an even stronger competitor to the United States than one under uh, China as it's governed today? I'm not sure I can understand what you mean. Uh, would a free and democratic China be more of a competitor to American interests? Oh, okay. Yeah. Perhaps you know, uh, as a, a free country, USA, would do any harm or maybe more aggression to the whole world? Or if China became uh, a freer country, I think the world would benefit more from it and not from the, the fear of frighten. Uh, the aggression, something like that. Thanks. Well, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Cushman and Professor Shah for a very uh, engaging discussion and uh, wish them both success in their work. And uh, thank you all for attending. Uh, if you'd like to join us for lunch, you can just go up the stairs and it's on the next floor. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much.